We've been studying ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church here for many weeks now, and we come to perhaps the last, unless I come up with something else for next week, but the last of our series in this uh, topic, and that is to talk about deacons, deacons in the church. If you would, would turn to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, one of the two obvious references to this office, this office of service in the church, Philippians 1 and verse 1, speaks of it. Paul, of course, is addressing the church in Philippi, and he has a special word for those who are in uh, these official positions of, of uh, caring for the church. Paul, of course, says, Paul. this is Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ, Jesus, and he writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And I think it's kind of curious what, first of all, that he identifies himself as a slave. Well, we are, as we studied in Colossians chapter 2, don't be, don't present yourself, well, it's Romans 6 also, but Colossians 2 talks about the, uh, don't be led captive or, or taken away captive by vain philosophy and, and all that kind of stuff, but rather under Christ. In other words, instead of being captive to falsehood, let's be captive to Christ. We're going to be captive to one or the other. Forget about the falsehood. Won't you rather be a slave, a captive, a prisoner of Christ, be attached to him? And so Paul, regularly identifies himself as a slave, not just of other people or a slave of Timothy or a slave of this, that, and the other thing, but Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. I do what he wants me to do. I'm, I'm, my fate is bound together with him. And if he wants me to live, great. If he wants me to die, great. If he wants me to suffer in prison, great. In fact, that's where he was, of course, when he writes this letter to the Philippians. But he addresses this letter, Philippians, to the church in Christ Jesus. He identifies them as saints, and you think all those saints were the ones with the holy, you know, the halos around and, and they're beatified in the, in the church. No, just regular people, regular folks who are in Christ, those who are set apart wholly unto God. He writes to them, those who are in Christ Jesus, but also who are in Philippi. So we have a heavenly, eternal situation, but also a temporal or earthly situation as well. And he writes to them. But in, in the midst of that group of saints, he wants to pick out two groups in particular. And that is the overseers and deacons. We've looked at the office of overseer for, I don't know, three or four, well, three weeks probably. And considered that that word overseer is the same uh, or is synonymous with elder or pastor as well. We, we looked at that and I won't belabor the point now. But overseers are the same as pastors or elders as what I've been uh, presenting from the scripture. And so you could just as well say with the elders and deacons or with the pastors and deacons. The idea is that these offices, deacon and overseer, are those recognized offices. They're within the whole body, right? They're, they're not extraneous or extra to this body. They're not overseeing from a distance, a local congregation in Philippi. They're within that congregation in Philippi. And so they are those who have the responsibility for teaching, feeding, caring for, leading, guiding, protecting the church in Philippi. The overseers are. And the deacons, well, what are they doing? This is really the, the first time historically we, we see this term deacons used specifically in relation to an office in the church. And we'll look at some examples of, of how that may be or may not be. But whenever we see the official terms of overseer and deacon, it's usually, well, it's in that connection. I should say it this way. Whenever we see the term deacon in its official capacity, it's in relation to the overseers, which is to say, you can't have one without the other. Well, yes, you can. You can have overseers, pastors, elders without the other, but you can't have deacons without the pastors. Can you get that? And so whenever we see deacons here in Philippians 1.1, we see the deacons and, and overseers together. 
We'll see it again in, in 1 Timothy 3 is where we're going to be studying in just a moment. But throughout scripture, we see this term deacon or is really coming from a, a Greek word to serve. And we see several, several, several examples of what does it mean to serve? Well, we can see uh, so many times in scripture, just a general service, just uh, just doing, just serving other people. Uh, even Romans 12 and verse 7 kind of just doesn't even qualify. It doesn't even put any um, uh, descriptors or, or re- uh, restrictors on the idea. Hey, if you have a gift of service, then serve. I think, well, that's kind of, okay, aren't we all supposed to serve? Well, yes, but there are some who have the gift and there are some who have the office, as we'll see going along here. Everybody, all the saints are called to serve and there is that general service. We saw at the end of Colossians 4, when Paul said, hey, say to Archippus, take heed to the service, or we translate it ministry, which you've received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. What was that ministry? We looked at, we considered a few different options, but we don't know what that particular service was. But he had some special task, something that was given to him to accomplish. Did you know even we have ministering spirits, serving spirits? Those are the angels. Hebrews 1 and verse 14 says, Are these angels not all ministering spirits sent to render service? So there's kind of a duplication, that idea of serving, for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. What a joyful thing to consider the angels that, that minister to those who will inherit salvation. Well, that's those who are in Christ. And so God has sent his angels to help us and comfort us and, and render aid to us. So service can have this general kind of a sense, but it can also be very specific. Hey, we need food. Can you serve me some food? We see the idea of a waiter or a food server or a cook even, somebody who prepares the food. I remember how Martha, Mary and Martha, oh, what a tremendous example she is, and she is, right? Martha, an example of service. Mary is an example of devotion to the Lord. But Martha was distracted in all her preparations. That word preparations is the word service. So in all her, all her stuff, all her ministry, she was distracted in all that. And she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care? My sister has left me to do all the ministry, all the preparations alone. So tell her to help me. And of course, Jesus, you, this is in Luke 10. You can read all about that. That the idea is that Martha is, is preparing food for this dinner, uh, that is, that she's putting together and wants Mary rather to help. So food service is very important. When Jesus um, is telling this parable of, of the wicked slaves and righteous slaves, this is in Luke 12, verse 37, he says, uh, verse, uh, verse 37 says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, now get this, this is really topsy-turvy what's going on. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself, the master will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table, and then he will come and wait upon them. Wow, man, that's just tremendous. What is this? It's usually, if you read read about it in Luke 17, the illustration of, you know, you have a slave, you command him to do this, and after I have eaten, the master says, then you can take your meal as well. But here, it's the exact opposite. The master will serve the servants, and it has to do with food. So reclining at the table and uh, serving the food. Jesus later in the upper room says, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Well, obviously, uh, it's the one who reclines because you're being served, right? But Jesus said, I am among you as the one who serves. Christ Jesus is that master who serves his people. So there's that idea of food service that is very key to this idea of ministry or or serving or even the the, the word transliterated into our English is deacon. Uh, 
could be. Another idea of service is being a personal attendant, just somebody who is traveling with or helping. Do you remember when Jesus had his temptation in Matthew 4, Luke 4, that the angels came down? And Mark uh, 1, actually Matthew and Mark both record that, the statement, the angels came to minister or serve Jesus. Specifically, after the 40 days of, of fasting in the wilderness, after the trial of temptation in the wilderness, the angels came and did what? I don't know how they ministered to him, but they comforted him and were a help to him. Do you remember, and this is reported in all three of the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, that when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law from her fever, from her issues, she got up immediately and served them. Now, how does she serve them? It's not really evident in the text, but perhaps it's food service, perhaps it's whatever it is she's attending to their needs, maybe washing their feet, whatever the situation is. She was so thankful to be up and about and doing uh, for the Lord that is with her, the one that healed her. Peter, or excuse me, Paul, well, Peter had John Mark uh, probably uh, attending him as a personal uh, uh, server, servant. Paul had a bunch of those, Timothy, Erastus, Onesiphorus, Onesimus, uh, John Mark even at the end of Paul's life. He says, hey, pick up John Mark for he's useful to me for service, right? Ministry. And so this idea of a personal attendant or personal servant is in this idea of service. There are those who are household servants or in a court, like a royal court, when Jesus talks about this example of the king and and uh, having a banquet and going to get people in Matthew 22, the king said to the servants, these are his own you know, household servants or his court servants, bind that person hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness in that place to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are servants who accomplish the will of the, of the king. Those, they're, they're in the house. They have to do with whatever the master of the king has to say. Do you remember in John 2 when, when at the wedding in Cana of Galilee that Jesus' mother Mary came and said to the servants, the household servants, or maybe they were the, the, the caterer staff. We don't know exactly, but in that situation, Mary said to them, whatever he tells you to do, that's what you should do. Do that. And so we see this idea of household or court servant. We see, and of course it's mentioned later in verse 9 of John 2, that the servants who had drawn the water, they knew what was in that you know, what the, the head waiter had just uh, drank, and that was beautiful, good wine for the celebration of the, of the uh, wedding. Another example, and this probably is the predominant example of ministry, and that's what we typically think of. When we use that word ministry, right, well, oh, that's, that's Christian stuff, that's gospel, you know, preaching the word or teaching the word or evangelism, it's ministry. Well, yes, but we can see it used elsewhere also with all these other things, general service, food service, and the others. But ministry or being a, uh, a minister, a servant, often is used in relation to bearing a message or delivering some item. So it's, it's a bearer, a courier of some message or item for the sake of other people. We see this, obviously, we think about ministry, we think, oh, of course, ministry is all over the scripture. Even going back into the Levitical system, they had the ministry, the Levites had the ministry to support the priests in the service of the tabernacle and then eventually the temple to serve the sacrifices and all the, the, the offerings and, and things that were going on there. But we see this ministry, we see it in Acts 1, talking about uh, Judas had gone away, neglected this ministry, we need somebody else to join us in this ministry and apostleship, and so there is that idea. We see it in relation to uh, Barnabas and Saul, we see it in terms of messages, but we also see it in terms of physical aid, uh, donations, contributions. We see this, how Barnabas and Saul, this is Acts 12 and verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned 
to or from Jerusalem fulfilling their ministry. What was their ministry? They took a contribution for the needs, physical needs of the church in Jerusalem because there was a famine. It was very difficult. And because of the persecution that was going on, of course, they fulfilled their ministry. What is that to say? They preached the gospel all over? No, they delivered the gift that they had collected and that was sent to uh, the church in Jerusalem. That ministry, that combination of a a word-based ministry and a tangible contribution is is throughout this this idea of being a messenger or a courier. Uh, For example, Romans 11. Paul says, Romans 11, 13, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, doing what I'm intended to do, preaching the gospel to, uh, to the Gentiles. And he says, that's my ministry. That is my service, preaching. He, a little bit later in Romans, Romans 15, goes back to the idea of I'm ministering by presenting a contribution, a gift for the service of the saints, Romans 15 and verse 25, and then uh, verse 31. He hopes that his service to Jerusalem or for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. I hope they receive this. I hope they don't be offended that we're giving them a gift. We're trying to help them you know, physically, tangibly. Uh, these Jewish brothers of ours raised predominantly, the, the contribution rather, raised predominantly from Gentile churches. He says this is, this is the way it ought to be, that Gentiles owe so much to the Jewish uh, forebears, those who were in Christ ahead of us. And so he wanted to show some return on that that uh, that kindness, that extension of salvation from Jew to Gentile. So ministry is all throughout. Good grief, there's so many examples. Uh, Ephesians 3 talks about the gospel of which I was made a minister, a, a servant, not a deacon in, the, in an official sense, but a minister, one who serves, who brings a message of salvation. Colossians 1, 23 through 25 also has that same idea. I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So again, we see this idea of ministry very much throughout scripture. A last example of service, ministry, uh, servanthood, is this idea of, of serving as an agent an agent of somebody or as an instrument, using something as an instrument. You can use uh, uh, an axe or a, a hammer as an instrument to do something. And so you think, well, that's kind of harsh, maybe. Uh, you, you accomplish something as an agent, whether as a power of attorney, even you're representing somebody, uh, and that's an example. In fact, so much when you, in, in the scriptures, uh, and outside extra biblical literature that you read about somebody who was, was serving as an apostle. You think, okay, what's, what, what's, what is all this? Another term was well, somebody who is standing in for the, the person they're representing. One person I remember reading about extra biblical, uh, the, the, the master, the person he was representing went away, was on a long voyage. And during the course of his absence, the apostle, the, the, the power of attorney, the servant, the one who's standing in place of the master just grew tired of that man's wife and divorced the, the, the wife from the husband who had no clue what was going on. When the husband came back, he was divorced because he had the power of attorney. Well, that's an agent. Now, I don't know what happened to the guy but or the wife or the whole situation, but we see that evident in the power that is granted. Those who uh, get something done, uh, this is from uh, election lectionary, uh, one who gets something done at the behest of a superior. So it, it says the idea of I am serving the interests, the, the 
will, the intention of my master. I'm doing this on his behalf and whatever it might be. It could be taking out the trash. It could be writing, uh, you know, signing a document on their behalf, something, whatever it is, doing something on behalf of somebody who is superior. And this also would relate to uh, instruments, you know, taking a, 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 Dishwasher is an instrument. You want that dishwasher to fulfill the, the desires, the interests of the person governing it. You don't want it to be spewing water all over the place or flying all things. You don't ever know what goes on in a dishwasher. It would be interesting to put a GoPro in there or something. Anyway, a very practical example is Romans 13. Romans 13 talks about the servant of God, the minister of God. And you think, Romans 13, what's Romans 13 again? It's governing authorities are servants of God are ministers of God. Romans 13, I don't have time to elaborate too much on it, but the governing authority is a minister of God for your good, even to bring what is temporal judgment on individuals and even nations. God brings, uses other governing authorities to to mediate his will, his justice upon people. And so we see that governing authorities or the state or just kings and and those in authority are agents of God. They accomplish God's will. You think, well, they're not really accomplishing God's will. They're going exact opposite. Well, they will be accountable. They are accountable. So many times, in fact, you just read like in Amos or in uh, Nahum, Amos talks about the, the judgment of God upon Moab and Edom and Syria and uh, Gaza and, wait a minute, Judah and God's judgment upon his people and upon other people and temporal. They, they're out of there. We don't even read about Moabites or Edomites nowadays. They're gone, but we read about Israelites because God's promises are sure. Even though they will deny him and so forth, God is faithful. So God uses the state or kings and those in authority as agents to accomplish his will. All that to bring us to this point bringing all these ideas together. What then is a deacon? We saw it in relation to overseers and uh, overseers and the church. So what is a deacon? For our purposes here, and I'll, we'll look at that, this idea going forward a little bit, we as a church, because there are different churches that have different ideas and, and even can argue somewhat from Scripture, but again, because the idea of, of service has all these different aspects, right? Or, or the ways that this term can be used. But when it is used in the official sense in Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3, we are teaching that deacons serve as assistants under the authority of the pastors for the benefit of the congregation. So deacons are assistants under the authority of the pastors, who are the authority who ha- and you know, whenever I think of pastoral authority, I think of pastoral responsibility before the Lord. Hebrews 13, 17. They will give an account before God, not so much to the church. We are accountable to you, but we're accountable for you, more importantly, and that is to the Lord, and we will give an account to him. And so deacons serve as assistants under the authority of the pastors, the elders, the overseers, for the benefit of the congregation. It's serving the interests, the needs, the the best interests of the congregation that deacons are serving for. You know, As it comes down, the deacons can serve in any function uh, designated by the pastors for the benefit of the congregation as long as the deacons don't usurp the role or encroach into the role that needs to be held by the elders. Wouldn't it be nice if the pastors could just delegate everything to the deacons and let them handle all the problem people and all this over here and and wash the windows and all just everything. Deacons, you take care of it and just serve us and we'll let you know when you're done. That's not what service is for everybody, especially for those who are in authority. 
Do you remember how Jesus said it? The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for a bunch of derelict, disobedient, rebellious, stiff-necked, obstinate people. I mean, to give his life a ransom for many, in other words, is how he says it. Mark 10, 45 and Matthew 22, I think he says that same thing. In other words, Jesus served. Jesus serves. The Holy Spirit serves us. God the Father has served us. Jesus said the master, when the, when the master comes, he will serve at table servants who ought to be serving the master. And so we see this beautiful idea that service is for everybody. It's especially for these deacons who are designated to serve in this particular uh, path. The New Testament, as far as we can tell, assigns no specific tasks to the deacons. And so it can really be a variety of, of things. It could be a very specific job. It could be, a, a, you know, the Latin term ad hoc to that task. To this is, this is the Latin, and it says, okay, we have a deacon that's going to take care of this issue. It's a very short-term thing, maybe planning for an event, a special event we're going to do. We need a deacon to coordinate that. Or maybe it's a long-standing or a, more of a permanent issue of, of uh, you know, we need somebody to administrate this program or this uh, situation. We need a deacon overseeing it. And we think, well, why does it have to be a deacon? Well, because of the uh, the fulfillment, the, working closely with the overseers in the fulfillment of the needs of the congregation. It's not to say that everybody is not a servant. Do you remember how it said back in Philippians 1, 1, everybody's a saint. Everybody has that responsibility to serve and to meet needs one to another and even more corporately. But there is a specific role for these deacons to serve in these particular ways as assistants to the pastors. Perhaps it is caring for uh, practical needs uh, for those who are in need. You know how much in Scripture, and this, again, in a lot of respects, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, about Acts 6. You remember how the, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution? Was that of food or of money? I think it's more money. I think they were handing out money. I could justify that or, or explain that, but uh, the distribution of money and the apostles said it's not good because these were being overlooked in the daily distribution. It was, you know, charge of impartial or partiality. You're, you're favoring your Judean people and our Hellenistic people are being mistaken or, or uh, neglected and so it's not good. And the apostles said, you're right. It's not good for us to neglect the word of God to serve tables. And I think that has to do with with money and managing money. And so they appointed seven that, that cared for them. The point is, they were caring for practical needs of the people. So much in Scripture we see the need for caring for those who are poor, widows, orphans, strangers, the sick. Even going back to the Exodus time, one of the, one of the not the strangest commandment, one of the, the sensitive commandments and, and one that had a reason for it is Hey, you Israelites, you take care of the stranger, the widow, the orphan, because you remember that you were strangers. You were even slaves. You were held captive in Egypt for a long time. So you show compassion. Just as you've been shown compassion, you show compassion to other people. This idea of ministering to very practical needs, which is traditionally an aspect of deacon work, is major underscored in James 1 and verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We see this idea of meeting practical needs. Titus 3 also talks about our people, the whole church, ought to be so ready to meet practical practical needs. John, 1 John chapter 3, uh, 
I think of it so graphically. It's First uh, John three sixteen and seventeen. Whoever has the world's goods, I mean, you're just rich. And you think I'm not rich? Are you here? Are you well? You have clothing. You have, you have some breakfast. Maybe not by choice, but did you have some? We are so we are full of the world's goods. And if you see your brother in need, and you close up your heart and your pocketbook and everything else you have against them, First uh, John three. Uh, 16 and 17 and uh, 18 even. You close up your heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? You you have resources. You see somebody who needs resources and you say, this is mine. I'm keeping it for myself. I don't know. Rainy day fund, all that kind of thing. If you see somebody in need, because you love God, because God has loved you, show forth that love and being generous. Hospitable, remember, meeting others' needs. And this verse 18, which is kind of amended, kind of summarized by George Washington. I'll tell you that in just a moment. But verse 18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Let us not say, I love you, you know, go and be blessed and be warm and all that. But what are we going to do about it? How are we going to show the the works or the truth working itself out in works? And so George Washington had a phrase, very, very short, terse, and yet profound. Deeds, not words. Now, he, he was a man who talked. He appreciates truth and all that. But he says, look, when it comes down to it, we can talk words all the time. What are you going to do about it? So deeds, not words, even as John said here. Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. At the end, this is the last example. At the end of Paul's address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, the whole thing came down to, hey, I very similar to what Samuel, the prophet Samuel, said back in uh, 1 Samuel 10, 11, somewhere in that context, he said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. This is Paul speaking. So you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to those who are with me. In everything, I showed you that by laboring in this manner, you, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so this idea, again, of benevolence, of caring for other people's needs is very essential to the life of a church and perhaps even special to the work of a deacon. Well, so much about the work of deacons, but what about the qualifications? Because that's really what the scripture is speaking about. We saw that in relation to elders, pastors, overseers. Not a lot of definition, well, actually more definition about what they're about and even inherent in the terms used. But with deacons, hey, serve. Servants, you guys serve. Serve the serving. Serve with service. What are we talking about? But these, these qualifications are underscoring, emphasizing the fact, hey, this is an official capacity on behalf of the church. This is, these are people that need to be um, vetted or uh, tested. We'll even see that in verse 10 here. So 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8, as where we see, of course, the first seven verses of chapter 3 we looked at a few weeks ago, qualifications for overseers. What we see, qualifications for deacons are very similar a little bit different sometimes, but, but similar, same same vein, same idea, same emphases. The idea is it's character. Character matters. Truth matters, of course, but the character of these people, what does that truth look like in, the, in this guy's life? How does it relate? How does he relate to other people? How does he relate to his wife? How does he relate to his children? How does he relate to um, substances like wine and so forth? Well, we see this in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. How ought these deacons be? What, what should we expect to see in relation to these, these people? So re- reading this passage, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but build, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested. 
then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own households well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, very similar to what Paul had said regarding the overseers, beginning in verse 1 and 2 and through 7. But he says, these men also, oops, going back to verse 8, these deacons must be. He says, likewise, just in the same way that we examined and tested uh, elder, pastor, overseer, candidates for that position of service, deacons also must be this way. And he uses some terms that are repeated from either 1 Timothy 3 in relation to bishops or from Titus uh, 1, also in in regard to bishops, overseers. Like this term uh, is used in Titus, actually Titus 2, talking about older men ought to be here is translated dignified. The idea is somebody who's respectable, somebody who's honored, somebody who's held in high esteem, not uh, reputed for, oh, there goes the town drunkard, or there goes the, the, the swindler, or there goes the one who, boy, you know, his, he's, he's a salty speaker, and not in a good gospel-centered way. He's, he's, yeah, you listen to him, get an education. No, have a reputation for good works, those who are uh, serious-minded even, those who are not noble in a haughty sense, but noble in a good sense. They're, they're, they're not standoffish, they're not unapproachable, but they do have a, a sense of, or a manner that, that pertains to honorableness, or honor, honor, and uh, how that they are worthy of special respect. Again, not, not adoring them, not worshiping them, because they're just people, but, but having uh, somebody who is, is dignified in that regard. Somebody who can... Uh, call up other people. Hey, it's not to say they can't be fun and, and joke around sometimes, but the idea is that they, they use words to uh, build up and, and especially to build up and glorify God, using God's words to, to praise him and bring help to other people. He says that these deacons must be dignified in that regard. He says not double-tongued. And that is very important for all of us, by the way. And again, I guess I repeat it from our previous studies. These are what Christians should be, right? It's not like, oh, we can have some double-tongued people in the congregation. It's okay, but we certainly can't have it in the eldership or the, or the deaconship. Wait a minute. We don't want anybody to be double-tongued. That's the idea of being two-faced or being hypocritical, saying one thing to this group and saying this, that thing to the other group, and maybe there's another group over here. Being a chameleon, kind of just, you know, whatever the situation is, whatever the context is, that's how I'm going to conduct myself. Well, now there's a sense in which that is prudent and appropriate, and you can, you know, let your hair down, as the saying goes, at home, and and be silly or whatever. But, but generally speaking, not disingenuous. Somebody who is the same person, same person, whatever the context, speaking the same thing, especially, not manipulative, not somebody who is insincere, and you're know, kind of testing the waters. I just remember when Jesus asked the question, by what authority? Did John, you know, what, and what name or what power did John come preaching? And those Pharisees did not answer truthfully. They answered politically. They answered, well, well if we say this, and he's going to say this. If we say this, and that's going to happen. So they answered, we don't know, which is just a cop-out. They were, they were double-tongued. They were, you know, calculating what, what are the ramifications of these things to the detriment of the truth. It's okay for us to, to measure our words, to speak right, uh, speak words that are appropriate to the moment, and yet 
They were, they were doing it for their own interest, protecting their own selves, not double-tongued. This is the only time this word is used in, in the New Testament anyway, and it has to do with deceitful speech. So be careful. Deacons must be careful how they speak. He goes on and he says, not indulging in much wine, not given to it, not giving attention to, not saying, you know, I, I, I'm planning my weekend around how much beer I can consume or, uh, you know, I want to, I want to just, uh, respond. I want to make sure that that's on my top shelf and, and take care of this. He says, no, they're, they're not given and, uh, taken over by much wine. It's not to say not taken over by any wine. You remember the idea in the first century was wine was very helpful, very needful for uh, health, sanitation. Paul even tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, hey, take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. And so, and what? wait a minute, didn't we read about John 2? Didn't Jesus make a whole batch of wine that was the best, best stuff? So it's okay. But when you talk about somebody who just spends a long time with that stuff in the first century... In the 21st century, you don't need to spend a long time with that stuff uh, because it's a whole lot different than what we what they were drinking. Alcohol now is so much more refined, so much more potent, and so much more, or how should we say, less necessary in our 21st century. You don't have to drink wine for any reason. But these guys, he says, they should not indulge or be taken over by or given attention to uh, much of that alcoholic substance. Lastly here in this verse, not fond of dishonest gain. We saw this in Titus 1, verse 7, in relation to overseers, not fond of shameful gain or, or those who will be unscrupulous in the pursuit of money, those who are just shameless in their advancement of it so much. If, in fact, deacons are given a task of managing or distributing funds, well, there needs to be an accounting then of that. Where is that money going? Where, who is receiving it? How much and what form are they receiving it? Where is it coming from? Uh, in, there are so many accusations. You've heard these, and not just accusations, but outright um, imprisonments because of embezzling from a church. Not to be so. should not be uh, a, a practice or even a concern for deacons who have perhaps opportunity to distribute money or have the uh, the access to these things. Maybe they're the ones that count the offering or, or, or then distribute the benevolence. Whatever it is, these people should not be given to dishonest gain or seeking after it, not full of avarice or greed, not one who, again, act just deceitfully, just wickedly for their own purposes. All these negative things, one positive thing, dignified, but then not double-tugged, not indulging, not fond of dishonest gain. But here we see a a uh, kind of a capstone requirement in this section anyway. Verse 9 says, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This has two ideas in it. You're, you're holding to something, you're holding to the mystery of the faith, kind of like what Paul said in Titus 1 verse 9, holding fast the faithful word. So these are these are people who are holding to the mystery of the faith. We think, oh, that mysterious kind of ooey, spooky stuff. No, the stuff that was unknown before, but it's not but now it has been revealed, the mystery of the faith, the content that is now made known to us, of which Paul and others have spent their lives and even uh, were brought to death because of their preaching of the gospel. That mystery, that mystery which used to be unknown or kind of hidden from us, now it's open. We understand this. So they hold fast to that. They hold fast not to the un, unspoken or hidden aspects of it, but hey, we have this truth. We have this faith delivered to us. Let's hold fast that that wonderful message of salvation. But holding it fast regarding God's word is one thing. What does it look like in your life? 
he says it ought to be with a clear conscience. In other words, having a conscience, a clear conscience, means that your actions line up with your holding that mystery of the faith. Hey, God loves me. He's saved me from my sin, and that's wonderful, but I'm going to go do some of that sin. Wait a minute. That's not a clear conscience. Your conscience is going to condemn you if you, if you hold fast that, that, that uh, mystery of, of, the, of the faith, but then you go out and do something entirely contrary to it. That is not leading to a clear conscience. A conscience is spoken of lots of times in Scripture. Uh, we see that, that Paul said, I, I've lived my life with a good conscience. Uh, he says, we maintain a conscience, always a conscience without fault before God and, and before men. This is Acts 23, verse 1, and Acts 24, verse 16. He talks about this conscience. But a conscience is something that is internal to everybody. Romans 2 speaks about that. It is a sense, an inner sense of what is right and what is wrong. And sometimes it's, it's a misinformed conscience. If we have, for example, a big time, Paul speaks about having a conscience uh, against eating meat sacrificed to idols. 1 Corinthians 10 speaks about that. Uh, a conscience sake. Well, they, they have a weak conscience. They are believing wrong things, and therefore their conscience condemns them when they're trying to do things that, their con- that, that they think is wrong. Well, it's not wrong. Paul goes on to describe in that context. It's not wrong. because What's an idol? It's nothing. Just If you want to eat the meat, eat the meat. But if somebody has questions about it or questions you about it, then don't eat it for their sake. When you can eat it, fine. Your conscience does not condemn you, but theirs does. And if you in, uh, in, uh, force them to eat that meat, you're violating their conscience. So this idea of, of having a sense of right and wrong is intrinsic to humanity. Sometimes, though, our conscience is ill-informed and needs to be changed, rectified, and, and led differently. But this conscience is, for good or for bad, for right or for wrong, it it affirms the things that we know is good and it condemns those things that we know are bad. In this regard, for Timothy 3.9, these deacons have a clear conscience. What they know to be true, what, the, what they know to be true, what they value as mystery of the faith, that evidences itself in their life. And so their conscience affirms them. It, it confirms their lives as being in line with, with God's word. Verse 10 says, these men must also first be tested. Well, also what? Just like the prospective elder, pastor overseers should be tested, examined. These men also, or these ones, should also be examined. Let these uh, first be examined and then let them serve as deacons. And so we see the idea of, uh, this idea of testing is relates to this uh, practice of taking metals, metal ore especially, and um, testing it or evaluating it. You, you refine it, you refine the ore, get out of the, the, uh, the source rock or source material, and you want a pure metal. You want the silver or the gold or the copper or whatever it is. You want a pure thing. And so in the course of refining it, you will test it. You will see, can I see my my uh, reflection in this, in the silver or in the copper or the gold or whatever it is, mainly silver, I guess. You test it and you found it to be approved. You found it to be, yes, that's, that's good. Or in relation to, uh, you make something out of wood, maybe a, a, a shovel handle or something. You, you, you build it and then you test it and see, is this, does this hold, hold me up if I sit on it, right? Because shovels are for sitting on or something. He's resting your, no, uh, but shovels are for using. Can I dig and can I do this? So is it, can I test it? And is it found to be approved? And so this is the idea. Let these men, let these people also first be tested, evaluated, examined as a first matter, as a matter of first course. Very similar to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. Do not lay hands on anyone uh, 
too quickly. And that's not grab them and shake them. No, don't ordain them. Don't appoint them to service hastily. Take your time. Make sure that you ask the questions. Make sure that you evaluate and you, you get other people's perspective because of the reputation, right? The reputation of this person in the congregation. What are they about? Let them first be tested. Then, supposing they pass the test and so forth, then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. If they are beyond reproach. This idea of being beyond reproach, we saw it in first, or excuse me, in Titus chapter one, twice. He says the elders must be above reproach. Verse seven uh, says overseer must be above reproach. This is somebody who cannot be called into fault cannot be not have accusations stick to them for whatever it might be you know somebody has this against the brother and they never resolve the issue well that that's something that needs to be addressed that needs to be fixed it doesn't immediately disqualify them but hey let's let's work through any any disagreements any faults that we have let's work through those things get to the bottom of them and get to a blameless state so that there is not a reproach upon that person or even in the office of uh, of deacon Verse 11, and you think, well, wait a minute, what's he, what's he talking about here? Women must likewise be dignified and so forth. Who is he talking about? And I would love to dilate on this topic, but we don't have a lot of time. Let me just say that this term women can be translated, as it is here, women or wives. Do you remember back in verse First uh, Timothy 3, 2, it would be, I believe, uh, husband of one wife. Actually, it says it in the next verse 12. Husbands of only one wife. The word wife there is the same word. It can be translated depending on context, depending on relationship uh, with with uh, mentioning or talking about a man, that it could be a wife. And so are we talking about women in general, women deacons, women as wives of deacons, women as what? What, what is this word? And, and a lot of different... Bible students would, would come to a variety of conclusions. Uh, even this translation translates, translates it as women. If you have a, uh, let's see, New American Standard, NI, uh, New, New International Version would also translate it as women. If you had a ESV, King James, New King James, it would translate it as wives, the wives of deacons. Well, is this a third office then, or, or uh, can deacons be both Male and female, is that okay? Um, or is it, it what, is, what is being said here? Let me just say, I believe it's referring to wives of deacons. And you think, okay, what's all that about? You can ask me later, there's a lot of things I could say about it. But I think he's talking about wives that have a, a role in the fulfilling of the deacon's work. And you think, well, why aren't wives mentioned in relation to elders? Well, they are, sort of, right? First Timothy 3, verse 2. The uh, elder should be a husband of one wife, and you know, it, it says a one-woman man, so he uses those same two terms there, male or man, woman, husband, wife. Depending on context, you can translate either way. I think he doesn't mention or give qualifications for elders' wives because wives cannot share in the work of elders, which is to say leading feeding, teaching, uh, caring for, protecting the, the church. That's a the man's job, a man's job, or a group of godly men uh, job. Whereas in the work of deacons, it's, it's likely, it's perhaps even preferred to have the deacon's wife help in relation to fulfilling these different responsibilities. I just think, for practically speaking, hey, we're going to deliver this to widow so-and-so. Wife, would you come with me? So I'm not delivering this by myself to a widow uh, of whatever age. I don't want to have any appearance of anything 
any, any evil going on here. And so wife, would you come with me? So it's more likely, I should say, that a deacon's wife would participate in her husband's work than it is for a elder's wife to participate and share in the elder's work. I know there's conversations going on between elders and their wives, and ought to be so, but when the when the buck stops or whatever that saying is, it's the, the man who has that responsibility, again, not the authority so much, but the responsibility before the Lord to do what is right. But here it says these women or if you don't mind, these deacons' wives must likewise be dignified. So just like the deacons, they must be dignified. Same word, uh, that, or different, no, I forget now. It's the same word, different word. I forget how it goes here. That has to do with, um, yeah, verse 8, same verse, same word. Dignified, honorable. Uh, noble-minded, and so forth. This is a new term, and this is something that's only used, well, it is used elsewhere, but it's a word here translated malicious gossips. There's another term for gossip uh, that we could talk about. It has to do with somebody who is habitually engaging in this nasty work. But here, this word malicious gossips is another way, in fact, other translation, other places where this word is used, it's talking about Satan. He is the accuser, he's the slander, he's the liar, he is the malicious talker. Lord willing, we'll get into Job. I was going to say the Gospel of Job here pretty soon, but uh, what did Satan do? You know, Job is this, he only worships you and honors you because of what you give him. Take that away, he'll curse you to your face. And then he comes back and says, skin for skin. You know, man will give anything for, for his own righteousness, but you take, you affect his, afflict his own body, he will curse you. And so he's the accuser. We see it in a lot of respects that Satan is there to not build up. He's there to tear down. And this woman is not to be a malicious talker, not one who's lying about people, not using words to uh, speak evil about somebody, especially speaking evil about somebody not to that person. I mean, we do have the responsibility to rebuke, to correct, to show fault to one another when there are faults, but to say, you know, sister so-and-so is over here. She's doing all this, but I'm not talking to her. I'm talking to, you know, talking to the prayer chain or talking to whatever. We're talking about brother, sister, so-and-so, and they're just doing this and it's bad. And, all, and God bless them and help them. Wait a minute. If you have an issue, don't be talking to other people. Talk to the person. And so that is so important for these women to engage in right speech, speech that is giving grace to those who need giving uh rebuke to those who need not sharing it with other people that aren't part of the problem or the solution. Make sure that you are speaking to that uh, that person who has the issue. So the way that the woman uses her words, but also how they are temperate, how they are reasonable in this way, how they make decisions, how they are, uh, they have good judgment about things. They're clear-headed about things. They, they have a sense of discernment because sometimes, well, a lot of times, the men are supposed to be discerning and, and prudent and all these things, very important, but sometimes you need another perspective, which is why we need a plurality of godly men, elders, to, to evaluate and come from different perspectives and, and uh, approaches and histories and experiences so that we come to a good, sound conclusion. But even in relation to husband-wife uh, work of deacon, that there needs to be this idea of being circumspect or uh, stable, somebody who's just stable in mind, not, not unhinged, not uh, going, going off the rocker on different things, but somebody who is, is uh, just temperate, moderate, able to, to navigate the ups and the downs of, of ministry, of service. And lastly, he says here, faithful in all things. Just somebody who's reliable, trustworthy, dependable in everything. You think, well, she has this issue over here. Well, you know, generally speaking, it has been said, 
if we were to look at any one of us in just a, a snapshot moment of time, we would question everybody's salvation. Are, are you kidding me? You look at you look at each other. We need a savior every day. So faithful in all things, that's kind of a high task. And yet, on the on the average, on the on the a pattern of, of this lady's life, is she faithful? Is she responsible? Does she fulfill her expectations and the and the ministry given to her? He goes back and addresses this idea of deacons, which kind of was one of the reasons why I think he's talking about wives of deacons, because he's still talking about the deacons' qualifications. Verse 12, he says, deacons must be husbands of only one wife. Oh, wait a minute. They can't be women then, right? Because it doesn't say uh, wife of only one husband or that. But it's talking about deacons. Again, the context is in the household. How is the guy conducting himself? How does he relate to his wife? How does he relate to his children? Very similar to what Paul said earlier about elders, verses 4 and 5. 1 Timothy, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. For if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? He does not reiterate or repeat that idea of caring for the church of God because that's the elder's job. But even so, deacons must have a, uh, or be faithful in their marriage, be devoted to their wife, not given into immorality, adultery, polygamy, uh, pornography, the things that would just deteriorate and, and destroy this marriage, but one who is given fully to his wife, one who is given fully to leading his children. And his own household, all, all the stuff related to it. Does he pay his bills on time? Does he uh, make sure he registers the vehicles? All, this, you know, all, all the stuff related to managing, conducting a household. Does he do it well? And a lot of times, hopefully, there's some assistance that the husband and wife can work together and delegate you know, with strengths and weaknesses and so forth. But how, how is the man's performance in his household? How is he faithful in that regard to his wife, to his children, if the Lord has blessed them with children? if the Lord has even blessed him with a wife. It's not to say that deacons must be married just in the same way as, as elders. Can you have single men as elders? I think so. Uh, but if the man is married, he needs to be faithful in that marriage. If the man has children, he needs to manage them, lead them well, and uh, the whole household as well. Lastly, in verse 13, uh, a reward. You think, well, the elders didn't get a reward. This is even a temporal reward. Well, now the elders do get a reward. First Peter 5 and verse 4 says, uh, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's that, but that's in the future. Can't we have any rewards now? Not so much for elders, but here for pastor, excuse me, for deacons, verse 13, those who have served well, or you might say even are serving well, or even more specifically are deaconing well, because it's the same idea, right? Serve, serving, service, servant. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So they have a temporal reward. They obtain for themselves a high standing. They have a place of uh, a status or even a reputation. Hey, there's a great servant. It's kind of like, I know we're getting into that Christmas season when Ebenezer Scrooge is walking. This is in the Muppets. So I remember from this reference this Thursday night and I got kind of kidded for it. But anyway, uh, you remember in the Muppet Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge is walking through town and he is just, everybody hates him, just walks away, just shrinks back from him because he does not have a good or a high standing. He has a reputation for being stingy and miserly and wicked and nasty and a thief. But these deacons have a high standing, one who is uh, held in high esteem. They're respected in the church. This is a position of service, yes, but it's a, it's a respected, um, revered position. Having the ability to advance the the uh, the will, the the 
the choices, the, the verdicts, the edicts, whatever, of, of the pastors. Hey, this is great. This person is fulfilling it. Uh, and whatever capacity it is, whatever uh, task that they have to fulfill, they are doing it. They're doing it uh, in a glorious way, serving with a great honor and dignity and, and astuteness and devotion to the Lord, serving not for the sake of other people, but for the sake of God. I'm serving by doing this. I'm serving God by, by doing this over here. So having that high standing, that, that basis for life right now, but also a great boldness or a confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Not so much probably the content of faith, what we believe, you know, um, like Jude says, verse three, I think, uh, the faith once for all delivered for the saints is not the content of belief. I think it's the actual act of trusting God. You are, as a deacon, you are confirmed, you are confident in that faith, that that adherence, that devotion, that belief, that love for Jesus Christ. And so other people regard you highly, but you have a, a greater intimacy with the Lord. Why can we say that? Well, in, in very practical terms, Jesus came to serve. And so those who serve after his example, those who serve his people, Jesus loves. He loves that that you would be willing to, to devote your life or devote a series, uh, a season of life to the service of the church and that you will have great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. A very temporal reward for those who serve well as deacons. And it's a tremendous privilege and a blessing for pastors to serve, to serve, for deacons to serve in that regard. And we look forward to the implementation, the, the practical expression of that in this local congregation as well, establishing these different offices. I should say one last thing, and this really would be the last thing, is that, do you remember we studied this last time, Titus 1, Paul left Titus in Crete so that he would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city, just as I directed you. In other words, the point I'm getting at, if there is an issue in a local church, or if there's a lack in a lo local church of pastors, that's the first priority. Make sure you get pastors or elders, overseers established in that church. If, in the course of the life of the church, they need assistance, both assistance with a CE and assistance with a, a TS at the end, you get my drift, uh, then deacons, you appoint deacons. You find these qualified men who can help come alongside the, deacon, the elders rather to accomplish these needs. Pastors can be standalone, but deacons cannot. And deacons always are working in con connection with elders. We saw that in Philippians 1 and here in 1 Timothy 3. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have raised up each one in your church, in your congregation to serve you, to serve one another. We pray that we would be devoted to meeting one another's needs, that we would have a, an awareness that your word is changing our lives, that you have given us a mandate to love, to love you, and to show our love by loving one another. We pray that you would be very gracious to provide for us uh, elders, pastors, overseers, but also deacons that might be able to serve in specific needs for the sake of the congregation. We pray that you would help us to be qualified, whether we pursue these offices or not. Please help us to be qualified before you. Again, not because we're just so wonderful and we're straining ourselves to pat us on, ourselves on the back, but we see your grace active in our lives. We see that we are less like we were before. We're less given to sin and rebellion and disobedience to you and more given to obedience that we've been uh, grounded in you. And so we pray that we would walk in you. We be firmly established in your love and just abounding with thanksgiving. Thank you for each one who's here. Please save, please sanctify, please help us to be more like our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.